what I'm about to share with you is mostly true. Well, it's, it's 50% true. It's maybe a stretch. It's 30% true. We'll, we'll make our way through it. Let, let's just get into it. On Wednesday, Tina and I went over to Kalispell to pray with a lady in the hospital. We left town talking together like we always do and kept that conversation flowing just easily and smooth with no problems at all until we got to Swamp Creek. When we pulled into the Swamp Creek area, I looked up on the hill to my right and I stopped what we were talking about and I said, there's a new house up there. My wife said to me these words. She said, I don't think that's a new house. I think you're just seeing it for the first time. Conversation stopped dead in its tracks right there because these thoughts began to run through my mind. I am a pretty observant person. How in the world can you say that to me? You are implying that I'm not paying attention as we are driving and as we're looking around, and that just hurts my heart. It wounds my soul. And so for the next 10, 15 minutes, I just sat there quietly processing the vicious words that my wife had just said to me and all of the implication that went with that. And finally, I just shook it off and thought, we'll go ahead and talk again and, and we'll visit with one another and it'll all be okay. Well, here's the, the true part of the story. I, I looked up on the hill and I saw a house, possibly for the first time. Tina did say to me, I don't think that's a new house. I think you're just seeing it for the first time. The rest of it, it's all a lie. So I, I wasn't wounded, I wasn't hurt, none of that happened. But that, the other part of our conversation, that, that took place. I saw something possibly for the first time. Has that ever happened to you where you, you've been driving past something for, well, in this case, decades, and you see something literally for the first time? Anybody else ever been in that situation? You ever feel kind of stupid when that happens? Okay, thanks for joining me. I was, I was a little bit afraid there in transparency. Mine was going to be the only hand up. So I, I appreciate your honesty and I appreciate your willingness to say that. Happens to me fairly regularly, even though I think I'm a fairly observant person. There are times when something just grabs my attention and I'll think that's been there all this time. How did I not see it? I do that when I read the Bible as well. I can go through a passage that I have read over and over and over again, and I will see something as if for the very first time. Anybody else in that boat? Let me show you a couple places that it happened to me just this past week. First one's in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. Now, it's almost embarrassing to tell you that I have not only read this passage repeatedly through the years, I have preached it, I have taught it, and for some reason, I cannot ever remember seeing one portion within it. And I'll show it to you. This is Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works." And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, 
To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Verse 24 is the part that I cannot ever remember seeing before. Jesus says, But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say I do not lay on you any other burden. Now as we go through everything that Jesus is saying about this false prophetess Jezebel and the sexual immorality that she has brought into the popular culture in Thyatira, that's the part that really captures you. It's very practical. It's kind of right in your face. But tucked in the midst of it is this term, the deep things of Satan. And Jesus is saying, some of you haven't got caught up in those. You haven't been exploring those. You haven't been studying them. The best I can tell, this is the only place in the Bible where the deep things of Satan are called out like this. For the most part, what Jesus is saying when he refers to the deep things of Satan, he's talking about the way that popular culture and society gets wrapped up in the things that will knock us off the trail, the things that will take us on the wrong path, the deep things of Satan. And Jesus is saying to a group of people living in the midst of a culture and a society that has fallen into a pit, he's saying to a select group of them, good on you, good on you. You never cared about those things. You never got caught up in them. You never got pulled into them. And I don't have anything else to say to you. You just stand fast and firm. You just stay the course. Man, that's, that's powerful stuff. The deep things of teaching are around us all the time, or the deep things of teaching, the deep things of Satan are around us all the time, but so is the presence of God and His Spirit. And if we will lean into those last two things, God and His Spirit, we can avoid the others. We can stay out of that trap. And when you do, Jesus says, I have no other burden to lay on you. Now, I was barely chewing on that when I came across another passage that I have preached, I have taught, I have read, I have quoted, I have used in the counseling office, I don't know how many times, but as I was studying for this message, I saw it in a different light. Let me show that one to you. It's in the Gospel of John. John chapter 16, just verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I love that verse of Scripture. Man, do I ever love it. And like I say, I have preached it, I've taught it, I've used it. You may have been with me at different times when I have used it in any one of those applications, be that the counseling office or be that from the pulpit, whatever the case might be. I love that. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Here's what struck me this last week as I was studying it, and I don't know why I've never looked at this this way before. Now, let me remind you, I teach on a regular basis. You've heard me say this. We must read Scripture critically. If we really want to learn what the Bible has to say, then we must read critically. 
Read small. Read in such a way that what you're reading can penetrate your heart. That's the living and active nature of the Word of God. We can read it one time and see this. We can read it the next time and see something deeper. It always builds. It always grows. It never contradicts. But you have to read critically. Read very small. Read slow so that things can absorb. When you do, certain things will jump off the page at you. In this particular case, what caught me is timing. Jesus is on his way to the cross, and after that, the resurrection, and then the ascension into heaven. All of that is about to happen. It has not yet happened. Jesus is telling his disciples that he is going to leave them. They're going to be on their own. They're not going to be able to continue walking and talking with him They're going to be on their own. And he gives them this warning, and it's a good one. There's going to be some trouble ahead. In this world, you will have tribulation. There's some challenges that you're going to face, and oh boy, was that ever true. Still is. Just because you come to know Christ does not mean that it is smooth sailing from that moment on. There's still some trouble ahead. There's still tribulation ahead. There's still challenges ahead. Make no mistake about that. Don't let anybody tell you anything different. That's the truth. Jesus says it in John 16. But then he says this, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world before the cross. Before the cross. Now, he has faced everything else that humanity has to throw at him. He's faced everything else the devil has to throw at him. He has one major thing left to face. That's the cross and death. And before he ever gets there, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. It was a declaration ahead of time. It was a declaration before the biggest challenge of his earthly life. Jesus declared the victory before the challenge. I don't know why I've never seen that before. But the timing came off the page. Then Jesus attached all of that teaching to our ability to overcome. And he ties it together with his own bona fides, which is his blood. But take heart, I, Jesus says, have overcome the world. And if I've overcome the world and you are in me, you will too because of my blood, because of what I'm about to do. There are other places in Scripture where all of that comes together so beautifully. And like I say, Jesus' bona fides of the whole thing, his signature on the contract was written in his blood like this in the book of Revelation. This comes from the New American Standard Version. Take a look. Chapter 12, verse 11. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. In Revelation chapter 12, he's talking about those that will eventually lose their lives. Tribulation saints, martyrs that will lose their life for the sake of the gospel, but they will not lose their soul. They overcame, and did you see how? By the blood of the Lamb. By the blood of the Lamb. That's Jesus' signature, signed in His blood. This idea of becoming an overcomer through Christ, 
permeates the entire Bible. But let's just take the book of Revelation, and I'll show you a few other passages that drive this point home. Again, these are from the New American Standard because they use the word overcome. Other translations use a different word. But I want to hold on to this idea of overcoming. Here we go. We'll just run through them real fast. Revelation 2, verse 7. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes... I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Moving on. Revelation 2.11. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who will not be hurt by the second death. Revelation 2.26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Revelation 3.5. The one who overcomes will be clothed the same way in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Revelation 3.12, the one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Revelation 3, verse 21, The one who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat with my Father on his throne. Revelation 21, verse 7, The one who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. It is as if Jesus takes all of this idea of overcoming and puts it together in John chapter 16, verse 33, and he says, In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world, and so will you because of me. If I was going to summarize that, it would look like this. No matter what, friend, overcome. Overcome. No matter what you face, Jesus says, overcome. And I'll help you. I'll help you. I'll guarantee my help with my blood. That, that is powerful. And I want you to follow this. Jesus said it before he shed his blood. He knew the victory that was coming. When he made this declaration from the cross, it is finished, he was just wrapping it all together. And when he said to the disciples in John 16, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He said it before he ever faced the cross, and he means it for you before you ever face whatever it is that you face. You can overcome. Overcome, friend. Jesus says, overcome. I'll help you do it. The Apostle Paul knew that. He knew that. And he dedicated an entire chapter in the first letter of the first book he ever wrote, the book of 1 Thessalonians. It is a book of overcoming, but the second chapter of that book tells his story as it sets the stage for his reader's story so that they can see how they can follow his path and overcome through the blood of the Lamb. Let me show it to you. Turn there with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Again, pretty short chapter. We're going to read the whole thing. Paul writes, verse 1, 
For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers." For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Oh, that is a... That is a message of overcoming. And it starts with Paul's own example. Were you reading critically? Did you catch it? Listen to this again. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So we already know that there was much conflict in Thessalonica when Paul was there. Remember, he's only there three weeks. The people that he was preaching to, the people that he was teaching, they were absorbing it, but the people that didn't want to hear that message were causing him great problems. So he was run out of town after just three weeks. The whole time that he was in Thessalonica, conflict was all around him. Tribulation was all around him. But you heard what happened. They started hearing the message in just those three weeks. They caught what he was throwing. They were picking up what he was putting down. They were smelling what he was stepping in. I'll stop the metaphors. All of that was happening. They were grabbing hold of what Paul was bringing to them. It was working. It was working in just three weeks. And maybe, just maybe, part of the power of the message that he was bringing wasn't in word, but it was visible on his face and on Silas's face and on Timothy's face. Maybe they saw something not just in them but on them that really captured their attention. Paul says right there from the beginning that something had happened in Philippi. Did you hear that? Verse 2, 
But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know. Now, does that, does that make you curious? Does that capture you at all in such a way that, that it causes you to say, what, what happened there? What happened there? Boy, it does me. And I am so happy that we are not left with just a giant question mark. Because Paul says to the people in Thessalonica, you know what happened to us. Well, we want to know too. The Bible tells us. If you're curious, I'll show it to you. This is the story you do not want to miss. Let's go to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16. Now, we've got to start in verse 6 so that the table gets set for you. But you want to hear this. You want to see this because it will make some things just become clearer for you. Verse 6, chapter 16. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, it is incredibly important that you follow all of that. Paul wanted to go preach in Asia. God wouldn't let him. Paul had a, a vision to preach in these other places. The Spirit of the Lord stopped him from going there because God's intention was for Paul to get to Macedonia. Thessalonica is in Macedonia. So is Philippi. God was calling them to that place. Everybody with me? Shake your head yes. So he was following the will of God. He was following the leading of God. Watch what happens. Verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. All of that's happening in Philippi. Lydia's story is one of the great stories of conversion in all of Scripture. You can see why the Lord wanted him in Macedonia. But then the story turns. Verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. 
And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. The Lord led them to Macedonia. Things started out great. Lydia and her entire household became believers. They were baptized into Christ. And then they're followed by this slave girl that, according to the Bible, was doing little more than annoying Paul. And Paul dealt with it in the power of the Lord. And now he has been stripped naked, beaten with rods, thrown in prison, and shackled. Look at what happens next. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were fastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they had heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. That's what happened in Philippi. That's what happened in Philippi. Now watch what happens next. 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, there was a synagogue of the Jews. Right from Philippi, they went to Thessalonica. It's about 100 miles from Philippi to Thessalonica. And we just saw their path. It is 37 miles in the first leg, 30 miles in the second leg, and 33 miles in the third leg. 100 miles. Most scholars would tell you that it took them three days to go from Philippi to Thessalonica. It was an exact three-day journey. On foot, which I have to say is impressive to me, they made 100 miles in three days. When they got to Thessalonica, all of those wounds were still visible. The scars hadn't even healed up. The bruising wasn't gone. When they got to Thessalonica, it was visible to everybody. So instantly, they, they had a story to tell. You can imagine people saying, well, what happened to you? Paul said, well, let me tell you. Let me tell you. I'll tell you the whole story, how people came to know Christ from our preaching. I'll tell you the whole story, how we ended up dealing with this demon-possessed slave girl. I'll tell you the whole story, how they locked us up after beating us, but how God responded and got us out, all because of the bruising on their faces, all because of the bloody mess that was still following them. All of that would have still been visible. That became their opening. 
Friends, I want to remind you of John chapter 16, verse 33. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Paul knew it. He knew it. And when he wrote to the the church in Thessalonica, that's what he was telling them. And in the process, he was reminding them of that great truth, and it's a reminder for us too. If you walk with God long enough, listen to me, friend, if you walk with God long enough, you'll have some scars. There's going to be some bruising. There will be some cuts. There will be. But take heart. But take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. No matter what you face, Jesus has overcome the world. And He sealed it in His blood. So you stay with Him. You stay with Him. And a lot of people would say, well, that that would never be an issue for me. That would never happen to me. I would never walk away from the Lord. I'll always stay with Jesus. Well, there's an old statement that nobody really knows where it comes from. Some believe it is from prize fighting. Others believe it's a tactical statement that comes from the military. doesn't really matter where it comes from. The teaching of it is really good in light of that type of mindset. One that says, no matter what happens to me, I would never leave the Lord. I would never walk away from Him or even from His church. Well, look at this statement. Everyone has a plan until they get hit. Everybody has a plan until they get hit. Those that use this statement today as a teaching tool would follow it up with things like this. It's what you do afterwards that matters. Everybody has a plan until they get hit. And everybody will get hit. Even Christians that are walking with the Lord, everybody will get hit. Look at the Apostle Paul. It's what you do afterwards that matters. Sometimes what we have to do afterwards is shake the dust off and do what we were called to do. Stay the course. I wrote this in my weekly letter on Friday. I really like it, so I'm just going to share it with you again. If you get that on Fridays or Saturdays when it comes out, you have hopefully already seen this. If not, or if you have, just hang with me. If not, if you'd like to receive those, when we pass out the books at the end, put your email address in there and say, please sign me up for the letter. Just write it on there. We'll get it to you. Here you go. This whole idea of brushing the dust off, it has an interesting background. Here's what I wrote. Have you ever had dirt on your shoulders? Paul did. Do you vividly remember having dirt on your shoulders? Paul did. Do you know what to do when you have dirt on your shoulders? Paul did. Know what he did? He brushed it off. That's good advice. When you have dirt on your shoulders, brush it off. Maybe you're not familiar with the origin of this simple expression. Let me help you out. The term comes from a story in which a donkey falls into a well and cannot get out. The farmer tries to get the donkey out by rope, but he is unsuccessful. So he decides to just give up and bury the donkey in the well. As the farmer began filling the hole with dirt, the donkey became depressed, realizing that all the dirt on his shoulders and back were going to eventually bury him. Almost like a light bulb went on, he had an idea. I can shake it off and step up. Faced with only two options, die by doing nothing and getting buried, or shake the dirt off his shoulders and step up and live, the donkey shook the dirt off his shoulders and climbed out of the well. Paul did the exact same thing. Right after he left Philippi, he stayed in Macedonia, and he made his way to Thessalonica, and he brushed the dirt off his shoulders, and he preached. He told God's story. 
He said, look, I I don't tell you anything that happened in Philippi to get sympathy from you. Certainly, I don't want money from you. That's not my purpose. I just want to tell you God's story, and he did. He just told God's story. And when we tell God's story, God does something spectacular with it. And that's visible in in this simple little chapter in the book of 1 Thessalonians. People respond. Even after you've been hit, even after you've been cut, as you speak through the bruises, if you tell God's story, people respond unto salvation and unto a deeper walk with Him. So you tell God's story as often as you can. You tell God's story. It begs this question, though, how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, the first thing you have to do is make a choice to not become a victim. And that, that choice carries over to a lot of different things in life. In fact, here's a truth that I want you to hold on to. It is possible to be victimized without becoming a victim. We live in a world today full of victims that believe that they're owed something, that believe that because life has been difficult that, that the world just ought to take care of them, the world ought to just do everything for them. That's what it means to become a victim. And maybe it was just one set of circumstances that led to that mindset, but that mindset is still very, very prevalent. It doesn't have to be that way. In fact, here, we can just follow this up with this. A victim is defined by the harm that has come to them. An overcomer is defined by their life afterwards. What are you going to do on the backside of whatever situation it is that has come to fall on you? If you will choose to overcome by the blood of the Lamb, then God can do amazing things. But if you choose to live the life of a victim, you stop that dead in its tracks. It just stops right there. So overcome, and you do it through the blood of the Lamb. And even when we live in a world that is defined by this victim mentality, we can remember this. We may live in the world, but we are not of the world. Remember where you are from. I'll give you some scripture to help with that. Like this in the book of 1 John. Chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. All of that goes back to those promises through the book of Revelation. If you'll overcome, you're going to live forever in the presence of the Lord. Don't give that up. Don't give that up. And bring as many people with you as you can. Tell God's story. Don't focus so much on yours. Tell God's story. See what God does with it. I love the fact that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul doesn't go back and rehearse what happened in Philippi. He just mentions it. Hey, you know what happened. But then he told God's story, and people responded. And they still do. Tell God's story. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 24, we read these words. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. 
To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. You tell people about Christ in you, your hope of glory, and let God do the rest. Sometimes those tribulations come our way so that we'll have a platform to tell people about Jesus in us, our hope of glory. Tell his story in a world full of victims. Don't be one. Be an overcomer and be one by the blood of the Lamb. Tell his story. Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians very possibly at the beginning of his ministry was the first letter that made its way through the churches let me finish things up by taking you to the last letter he wrote it's second timothy i'll take you to chapter 4 verse 5 where paul says as for you always be sober-minded endure suffering do the work of an evangelist fulfill your ministry to timothy who was struggling in ephesus who was having a hard time, Paul wrote those words. My way of paraphrasing that would look like this. Keep your head about you. Endure suffering. Tell God's story. Stay the course no matter what. Stay the course. Just stay the course. And that's that message of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You stay the course. Keep your head about you. Stay the course. Because those blessings of revelation, man, they're waiting for you. They're waiting for you. Why would you ever walk away from those? Why would you leave those on the table? Can't imagine that anybody would, but I know many that have. Dini, you've known many that have. They've come to the Lord and then certain trials and struggles hit. They walk away. They walk away and they start telling everybody their story. They forget to tell God's story. And that takes them down this path where they just walk away from the blessings of God through overcoming. Tragic when that happens. You may say, gosh, that, that could never be. Well, think about this. In 2018, 1.5 million people failed to file their tax returns. 1.5 million people. And the IRS is sitting on $1.5 billion of those unclaimed tax returns because people just didn't do it. They just didn't do it. So they leave that money sitting on the table. A lot of people that leave the blessings of God on the table because they don't overcome. 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 Whatever it is that you face, you overcome and do it by the blood of the Lamb because if you are willing to claim that, the victory is already yours. It is already yours. Hold on to it. Look at what happened in Thessalonica after Philippi just three days later. And Paul was affecting this entire community so powerfully that it only took three weeks. Overcome. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, we just covered a lot of ground. I pray that it wasn't too much. Allow us to see what we need to see. For some, Father, they're on the backside of conflict and they're getting to see your blessing. and They're getting to see all that you have for them.
They're getting to realize your goodness. Grateful for that. Others, though, are still dealing with the open wounds and the bruising of conflict. I pray you'll stay very close to them and whisper in their ear regularly, as often as needed, overcome, overcome. Remind them of the promises, but more than that, remind them that you overcame and you'll lead them through. All we have to do is follow you. And then, Father, show us, show us the good things that you will, want, that you will do on the backside of whatever it is that we face. Show us your goodness. We ask that, Lord, for your glory. But because your glory lives in us and it is our hope, we also ask it for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.